welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. If I'm reading my calendar right, it's officially fall, meaning in immigration world that the immigration conference circuit has begun. Hope to see some of you or many of you at one or many of the wonderful conferences put on by the many impressive organizations that our bar boasts. In immigration news, the Ninth Circuit on Monday tossed a lower court decision that refused to preliminarily block a California law banning private immigration detention facilities, saying that the federal government and a private prison company's challenge are likely to prevail on their claim that the California statute violates the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Seems like private immigration prisons are here to stay in California for the foreseeable future. But who knows? In Petition for Review news, we've got three, all heady and all from the border circuits. Let's go. Starting off, we have Lara Garcia v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 26, 2022. Starting off with a long and complicated one about motions to reopen and expunged criminal convictions. Mr. Lara Garcia is from Mexico and became a lawful permanent resident of the United States in 2002. But in 2006, he was convicted of California burglary, California receipt of stolen property, and California possession of drug paraphernalia. For solely immigration intellectual reasons, all three of those are this immigration podcaster's favorites for a variety of reasons. Then in 2008, Mr. Larry Garcia was convicted of possession of methamphetamine in California. He was charged with removability for the drug offenses, with DHS alleging that they were both laws that violated a law relating to a controlled substance and that they showed that Mr. Larry Garcia had been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude within five years of receiving LPR status. That's two separate grounds of removability. Faced with all that, Mr. Larry Garcia sought and accepted voluntary departure, and it appears that he might have received it. 
He returned to Mexico in 2008, meaning I guess that he avoided a removal order. Maybe. It's a bit unclear. But it would appear that Mr. Larry Garcia re-entered the U.S. unlawfully after that, and in 2018, he got that 2008 methamphetamine conviction dismissed, quote, under California's rehabilitative statute, Cal Penal Code Section 1203.4, end quote. For those unfamiliar with the complexities of the Bear Republic and the Ninth Circuit, quote, For qualifying defendants, Section 1203.4A1 allows a California court to set aside the conviction, dismiss the criminal information, and release the defendant from nearly all penalties and disabilities that resulted from the conviction, end quote. Mr. Larry Garcia then took that and moved to reopen his case with the immigration judge. The IJ denied, and the BIA dismissed the appeal. The BIA believed the motion quite untimely, and then made some other findings that are very complicated and which I'll get into in a bit. In this decision, the Ninth Circuit ultimately remanded, although not on everything. It agreed, for example, that Mr. Larry Garcia's motion was like 10 years untimely from the 90-day motion to reopen period. But it's much more complicated than that, of course. See, the regulations actually prevent non-citizens like Mr. Larry Garcia from even filing a motion to reopen once they depart the United States. But the Ninth Circuit and many other circuits have found that regulation violative of the motion to reopen statute, and so don't permit its application, at least under certain circumstances. And certainly, quote, if an invalid conviction was a key part of the original removal proceedings, then the regulatory departure bar cannot apply, end quote. In this vein, in Cardoso Tlaseca v. Gonzalez, the Ninth Circuit, quote, held that a conviction that was later expunged by a state court because of a procedural or substantive defect was an invalid conviction for purposes of the regulation, end quote. So that's what happened here, right? Mr. Larry Garcia got his conviction invalidated so he can file the motion to reopen? Well, no. Because earlier this year in Paris Camacho v. Garland, according to this court, the Ninth Circuit held that the Cardoso-Tlaseca rule only applies to timely filed motions to reopen. I guess that means motions to reopen filed within 90 days of a non-citizen's removal order, which means to apply under these circumstances, the non-citizen would need to be removed quite quickly. Suffice it to say that Paris Camacho apparently has narrowed Cardoso-Tlaseca very significantly. But what about equitable tolling? Because after all, quote, a non-citizen may receive equitable tolling when some extraordinary circumstance stood in the non-citizen's way and prevented timely filing, and he acted with due diligence in pursuing his rights, end quote. Actually, equitable tolling would excuse the departure and permit a non-citizen like Mr. Larry Garcia to file his motion. The Ninth Circuit sure seems to be implying that. But equitable tolling was unmet here. To the court, Mr. Larry Garcia didn't act diligently, having waited nearly 10 years to attempt to have his conviction vacated. That means sua sponte reopening or bust. The IJ and the BIA can reopen proceedings at any time, on their own motion, at a non-citizen's prodding, for any reason under the current regulations. But BIA case law requires exceptional reasons. And when the BIA denies sua sponte reopening, the circuits can't usually review that denial. But courts may review where the denial was based on, and here's your standard to argue, quote, a legally erroneous premise, end quote. And here's where it gets quite complicated. 
In Lujan Armendariz v. INS, so you know it's old, the Ninth Circuit held that a, quote, dismissed conviction under the Federal First Offenders Act, or FFOA, or a similar conviction for simple possession of drugs, later expunged under a state's rehabilitative statute, was not a conviction for purposes of immigration law, end quote. It gets really complicated, and actually, the Ninth Circuit and Bank Court overruled Lujan Armendariz in Nunez-Reyes 11 years later in 2011, but only prospectively. Mr. Lara Garcia got his conviction in 2008, so the Lujan Armendariz rule potentially applies if what happened to Mr. Lara Garcia's conviction in California in 2018 is sufficiently similar to the FFOA under federal law. Like I said, it's complicated. The BIA said it wasn't sufficiently similar. To the BIA, quote, the FFOA allows federal expungement only if the federal sentencing court imposes a sentence of probation of one year or less. The state court in Mr. Larry Garcia's case, in contrast, imposed three years of probation. Three is more than one. Accordingly, his expungement does not qualify under Lujan Armendariz, end quote. That's what the BIA believed, and that's why it refused to exercise its sua sponte reopening authority, notwithstanding his expunged meth conviction. It believed Mr. Lara Garcia still removable for the conviction, regardless of what happened in 2018, and regardless of Lujan Armendariz. But that's wrong, according to the Ninth Circuit. Quote, Nothing in Lujan Armendariz or in any other decision suggests that the period of probation imposed in state court must match the one-year limit on probation under federal law. End quote. Instead, the Lujan Armendariz rule, quote, applies to anyone who was convicted for the first time of simple possession and whose conviction was later expunged under state law, end quote. Providing the timing matches up, of course. Thank you for clarifying Ninth Circuit. Put another way, regardless of the sentence received, the Lujan Armendariz question is this. If the non-citizen had been prosecuted under federal law rather than state law, would he have been eligible for FFOA treatment? If so, and if he later receives an expungement for a pre-Nunez-Reyes conviction, Lujan Armendariz applies. Love the Ninth. And of course, read all this stuff for yourself every time, because it's a web of confusion. Also, all of this might not apply if the non-citizen was imprisoned. Take all my qualifications. Anyway, regardless of the probation, here, Mr. Larry Garcia's conviction would have been FFOA eligible in 2008 had it been a federal prosecution. So the BIA was wrong to deny sua sponte reopening based on a finding that the 2018 expungement had no effect. And that's not all. Because the BIA also held in the alternative that the 2006 misdemeanor convictions were CIMTs, and because they occurred within five years of Mr. Lara Garcia's adjusting, he remained removable. That's what the BIA alternatively held, and that's why the BIA refused to sua sponte reopen the case. The Ninth Circuit reviewed this too, notwithstanding the fact that it arose in the sua sponte reopening context and is usually non-reviewable. And wouldn't you know it, the Ninth Circuit explained that the convictions were not CIMTs. Stop your cars and get your pens ready for the case law. Misdemeanor burglary in violation of California Penal Code Section 459 isn't a CIMT. That's Hernandez Cruz v. Holder, and the statute isn't divisible. 
Misdemeanor receiving stolen property in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 496A is not a CIMT. That's Castillo-Cruz v. Holder, and the statute probably isn't divisible. And misdemeanor possession of drug paraphernalia in violation of Cal Health and Safety Code Section 11364A is, quote, an offense less grave than drug possession, end quote, and is also not a CIMT. The Ninth Circuit is relying on the Supreme Court in Mullooly v. Lynch for that, and kind of on a Seventh Circuit decision, Barma v. Holder, from 2011. My oh my. And so, Mr. Lara Garcia gets his remand to the BIA in part to determine whether sua sponte reopening is otherwise warranted. Congratulations in part to Frank P. Sprouls for petitioner. No more. That was a lot. And that is Lara Garcia v. Garland. Sticking with the Ninth Circuit, we have De La Rosa Rodriguez v. Garland, published on September 27, 2022. The Ninth Circuit was pulling no intellectual punches this week. This case is about cancellation of removal, jurisdiction, and Patel. Mr. De La Rosa is from Mexico and has lived in the United States without authorization since 2005. He was placed in removal proceedings 12 years later, and because he has U.S. citizen children, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, requiring, among other things, that he show that his removal will cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to one or both of his children. The immigration judge denied, and the BIA affirmed, finding that standard unmet. The bigger question in this case for non-citizens generally is, can the Ninth Circuit even review that finding after Patel? Oil took a position here that appears opposite to the one that the Solicitor General took before the Supreme Court in Patel, and argued that, after Patel, the circuits can't review whether the BIA incorrectly applied its precedent and applied a heightened hardship standard to the facts of a given case. That's arguably an extension of Patel, not mandated by Patel. Patel definitely precludes review of contested factual findings tethered to non-LPR cancellation of removal, but does it apply to mixed questions of law and fact? That is, quote, an IJ's application of a standard to the facts of a case, end quote. In a holding that at first blush seems huge for petitions for review, the Ninth Circuit held that even after Patel, quote, although the BIA's ultimate decision to grant cancellation of removal is discretionary, Section 242A2D grants us jurisdiction to review a question of law or a mixed question of law and fact presented in a petition for review of an agency decision denying cancellation based on the absence of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to family members, end quote. This is indeed what many thought and hoped for even after Patel due to the Supreme Court's Guerrero-Lasprilla decision, but things got murky after Patel, and it is obviously much more important to have a circuit say it. The Ninth Circuit believed this conclusion required of the Supreme Court's and its own precedent. But what does all this ivory tower stuff really mean in practice? Here, that definitely permits the Ninth Circuit to review Mr. De La Rosa's arguments that, quote, the BIA failed to apply its own settled precedents, end quote. So that's reviewable. It also seems to permit the Ninth Circuit to review the BIA's, quote, application of that standard to the undisputed facts of his case, end quote. But the Ninth Circuit actually punted and wasn't willing to outright hold that yet. A tactic that the First Circuit took recently, apparently. 
Had the Ninth Circuit actually held that after Patel, circuits can still review the BIA's application of settled facts to a settled standard? The Ninth Circuit would have aligned with recent decisions out of the Fourth and Sixth Circuits, and kind of out of the Seventh and the Tenth, but would have conflicted with Castillo Gutierrez v. Garland out of the Fifth Circuit post-Patel, issued mere months after the Fifth Circuit held otherwise pre-Patel. Still gong-worthy. And you thought Patel was going to resolve things, silly Supreme Court. All of that being said, having reviewed the arguments, the Ninth Circuit did not agree with Mr. De La Rosa. Quote, the IJ carefully reviewed relevant BIA precedents in explaining the high threshold for hardship, the factors to be considered in determining the level of hardship, and the need to consider those factors in the aggregate. End quote. The BIA did the same, apparently. It did not nitpick each alleged hardship and then identify and adjudicate them individually. And so, the Ninth Circuit believed that the IJ and the BIA acted properly. Assuming jurisdiction to review the second issue, whether the undisputed facts rose to the level of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship under BIA and Ninth Circuit precedent, to the court, quote, Mr. De La Rosa largely focuses on the financial hardship to his children that would result from his removal, emphasizing his role as the sole financial provider for his household, end quote. But under 20-year-old BIA precedent, intentionally harsh, quote, economic detriment alone is insufficient to support even a finding of extreme hardship, end quote, much less exceptional and extremely unusual. So Mr. De La Rosa lost his case, largely due to changes to immigration law made 25 years ago. But in pushing the case law forward favorably for reviewability of such issues, the podcast salutes Mackenzie W. Mackins for petitioner. And that is De La Rosa Rodriguez v. Garland. Our final case this week is Ruiz Perez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on September 30th, 2022. This case is about a question that, to be honest, I didn't think was in dispute. Is cancellation of removal a form of immigration relief? It is. That's an important conclusion, because Ms. Ruiz Perez was ordered removed, physically removed, re-entered the U.S. without authorization, and had her final order of removal reinstated. Once that happens, non-citizens are ineligible for all forms of relief, except withholding of removal and protection under the Convention Against Torture, the latter of which is not relief at all, but is protection. Ms. Ruiz Perez, however, wanted to apply for cancellation of removal under the Violence Against Women Act. As it turns out, she re-entered the U.S. many years ago and was abused with her children by her LPR husband for about seven years. Among other domestic violence harms, her young son suffered a serious injury at the hands of her LPR husband. But an IJ in the BIA said that she could not apply because DHS had reinstated her previous final order of removal leaving her only to apply for withholding of removal or cat protection in withholding-only proceedings. The Fifth Circuit agreed. To be fair to Ms. Ruiz Perez, VAWA cancellation is different in many ways from regular cancellation of removal and other forms of relief. It has lessened hardship standards and time requirements and favorable exceptions to otherwise adverse conduct and inadmissibility provisions, provided the non-citizen or their child has indeed suffered the requisite abuse or extreme cruelty. 
And also, for example, quote, language from a 2006 amendment explains that immigration officials shall continue to have discretion to consent to the non-citizen's reapplication for admission after a previous order of removal, deportation, or exclusion, end quote. Ms. Ruiz Perez was relying heavily on that amendment, but like the IJ found, the Fifth Circuit determined that that's not really what's at play here. Under immigration law, Ms. Ruiz Perez isn't applying for readmission into the United States. She's seeking to avoid the effects of a reinstated final order of removal. And when that's happening, the statute, INA Section 241A5, bars non-citizens from applying for nearly all forms of relief, including, according to the Fifth Circuit, VAWA cancellation of removal. To reach its holding, the Fifth Circuit took a deep dive into the VAWA-type statutes in the INA and the reinstatement statute, but what I just said really is the gist. INA Section 241A5 is quite broad at barring applications for relief from removal upon reinstatement, and VAWA cancellation is relief, no matter the important function and special class of individuals that that relief is designed to protect. And, because Ms. Ruiz Perez didn't challenge the denial of withholding of removal or cat protection before the Fifth Circuit, it appears that she will be removed to Mexico. Judge Oldham believes that recent Supreme Court decisions divested of jurisdiction over the whole dispute. But here's a bit of good to leave you with as we enter both the fall and the year 5783 in the Hebrew calendar, if I'm not mistaken. For what it's worth, this decision makes clear something that's been tossed around on the podcast and elsewhere for some time. The Supreme Court's decision last term in Guzman Chavez extends the Supreme Court's Nasrallah decision two terms ago to withholding of removal under the INA, in addition to cat protection, because both are separate from a final order of removal. That means, and this is me now, that the circuits can review factual challenges to denial of both cat protection and withholding of removal under the INA. And that is Ruiz Perez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.